This is Behind the Curtain at L.A. Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen. You're listening to the music of composer Juhi Bansal, an orchestral work she wrote in 2014 called Where Shadow Chases Light. Bansal is my guest on today's edition of the podcast. She has composed a new work for L.A. Opera's Eurydice Found Festival called We All Look to the Stars. We'll talk about the new work, her compositional process, and lots more coming up. Let's start at the beginning. So you were born in India, moved to Hong Kong, eventually found your way to Los Angeles. Tell me about growing up. Uh, what was life like in, in your home as, as a, a young kid? I mean, it's, it's sort of hard to describe in some ways because you think it's the same as anybody else's and everybody else's. I mean, we left India when I was seven. So old enough that I remember actually, I think a fair amount about it, but also early enough that it's not I can't say that I grew up entirely there. And, um, you know, I have a very good friend who, when he's teasing, he always calls me culturally conflicted, which I think is a good description, because I have certainly Indian roots, and my family's history goes back really strong Indian roots. And then growing up in Hong Kong, I mean, it's, it's a very diverse place. You have a whole lot of expats and foreigners living there, but it's also just an interesting dynamic being there. It's not Chinese. It's a little bit different, I think, of an experience than being a native Hong Konger growing up there. And then I moved out here for college basically to go to USC to study composition, and now I've been here for 16, 17 years. But, you know, I think some of the running themes that kind of go through my childhood, my mom used to work for Indian classical radio, and she used to be involved a lot in Indian classical music. So uh, sort of some of my fondest memories as a kid is you wake up in the morning not to an alarm clock, but to Indian classical music blaring out of the radio. And I think that's been a big part of just musically what's kind of stayed with me. And I think even just sort of thinking about some of the projects I'm working on now, a lot of it is trying to find ways to wrestle with bringing in what I remember from Indian music and Indian heritage and Indian stories and sort of the same thing bits that I picked up while growing up in Hong Kong and kind of combining that into something that feels like it's an authentic music. Mm-hmm. That's interesting that you, uh, the phrase culturally conflicted, I like that. Um, it's a more positive spin on sort of the the idea, the concept that uh, folks um, like you that have these multiple backgrounds uh, talk about, you know, because some folks have characterized that feeling as as being not, not culturally conflicted, but almost feeling... You, you belong places and you don't belong there. Right. And I wonder if those are feelings that you've, that you've had as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I was having a conversation with uh, somebody else the other day about the same project. And uh, she had brought up, from her background, she's Hispanic, in, you know, born and brought up in Los Angeles. And she was talking about sometimes feeling like she's not Mexican enough, hmm. where you're talking about kind of that... that tug of war a little bit between belonging to a culture but maybe not belonging enough and I'd say that's certainly true when I visit Indian family or when we go to India I feel like I'm definitely not Indian enough because I've forgotten the language I used to be fluent but I have forgotten the language over 20 years Mm. and when I visit Hong Kong it's probably the place that feels most like home than anywhere else but again I learned some Cantonese when I was there and I don't remember my Cantonese and it's just I think the positive spin is maybe realizing that the positive part of that is that I've had exposure to many cultures and you just 
try your best to kind of find your own way of combining that into an experience and into maybe an outlook and a worldview as much as a view in terms of music that just makes sense. Yeah. A couple of things that I want to explore a little further. Um, the Hindustani classical music in your mother's background um, and certainly in, in your background, just, just hearing it growing up, and then the decision to pursue composition. What sorts of lines can you draw from that? Obviously, coming to USC, you're studying Western classical right. music, not Indian classical music. So where um, did the sort of shift in musical thought happen for you? Sure. I think with my family, there was never a sort of perception of music as being separated into styles. I mean, certainly there's an awareness of the fact that music coming from different places is different. But I remember um, my mom was actually the one who first pushed me into piano lessons. And uh, as a teenager, I had no interest. You know, my mom is this very forceful sort of figure. And she thought her belief was just that you should do something in music. While you're young enough to explore it, you should explore it. And I don't think it was ever a particularly important thing to her of what style it should be or kind of under what circumstances. We were in Hong Kong at that point, and piano lessons are kind of this thing. There, it's the norm. Everybody takes piano lessons, uh, or you take violin, or you take ballet. Um, so I did it, and I fell in love with it. And I think maybe just that idea of not feeling yourself entirely trapped into a single style, but kind of feeling free to bring in elements from all these different things, from Indian classical music, for example. I think that's something that is pretty pervasive to my view of music. And... I don't know, you're, you're asking me to go back and sort of think about these lines. As I'm thinking about it now, I wonder how much of that is just to do with how open-minded my mom was about it. Oh, that's interesting. That's very interesting. How many years were you in Hong Kong? Uh, let me see, from 7 to 17, so 10. Yeah. Probably right about 11. What is it like to see what's happening there right now for you? I'm, it must be difficult to see the, the scenes. It is uh, pretty, I don't know what's the right word. Um, it is hard. It was really hard. It's yeah. one of those things where for ever since this summer, I'll wake up in the morning and the first thing I do is I look at what was the news, what happened there overnight. And um, it's interesting talking to my family. They seem to have a more reserved view, like maybe more positive than what I feel like I'm seeing here. But it's, def it's definitely hard to see that. That's not at all what I experienced of Hong Kong growing up there. It's not what I've experienced going back to visit there ever since. So just to see all this happening is scary. Mm -hmm. Do you see uh, like places you recognize and stuff? All, uh, yeah. all the time. Yeah. Hong Kong is so small. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. I forget how many, it's 32 kilometers from end to end is the entirety of main Hong Kong Island. Yeah. So it's sort of like once you've been there, you'll recognize all those same places. And, you know, they keep showing photos of the MTR stations because of all the vandalism that's happening there. And anybody who has spent any time in Hong Kong will have passed through all those MTR stations. So just... It's maybe even more personal in a way, whereas things happen in California and they're within California, but they feel like they're so far away. This might be places you've never been to, whereas this you recognize exactly where that spot is. Yeah. When did you first notice that you had thoughts of music that was not other people's music, but music that was your own creation in your head? You mean as far as becoming a composer, or do you mean sort of... I don't know. I mean, honestly, like... I imagine like early on you may have thought of like 
a melody or something and you know you don't instantly say well now I am a composer Um, but just like because some people I've talked to who their first compositional thoughts were like oh I was in piano lessons and I kept going off and doing my own thing and then finally realized like oh maybe I should write some of this down or something right I I think I was really active as a performer when I was in high school and I think sort of as an offshoot of that you just you get interested in creating your own music and Probably the biggest thing for me is um, I went to high school under the British system. So they have an option when you're studying music for A-levels. There's a little unit that's about composition. And we weren't really taught anything as part of that. You just kind of had to do this assignment where you were writing something. But I think that was the first time I was kind of put on the spot to, you have some music skills, now create something. And I enjoyed it. I uh, think at that point I had delusions that I would turn into John Williams at some point, (laughs) which (laughs) has not been the path that that's taken. But um, I just I loved the experience of writing and then started to write more and then, you know, found out about USC's program. And I will never understand how I got into USC's program, to be honest with you. But somehow I got in and I think over the course of studying there, probably at some point in those first four years, I decided I, I, you know, was going to be a composer and was a composer, but I never had that light bulb moment. It was just a sort of gradual step by step by step. Yeah, that's interesting. So what was the program at USC and was it a specific teacher that you were wanting to study with? It was a bachelor's in composition, their their, uh, BM in composition. And, you know, I, I loved the program and the experience there so much. I actually stayed for another six years, seven years afterwards. Oh, wow. It's funny, what took me to USC in the first place was that when I was applying, this is from Hong Kong, I was looking for a school that would let me do a double major in composition and computer science. And there are just, there are very few, and having now tried to do it, I understand why there are so very few schools that will let you do it. Um, But I remember applying to all these programs, and ultimately I was deciding between Rochester, Eastman, and USC, and... I honestly, now I can't remember why. I think Los Angeles seemed like a more interesting city. I mean, we're talking about weather. Los Angeles is much warmer than New York. (laughs) Um, So that sort of made that decision. I have to admit, I didn't know, I mean, I didn't know enough about composition to know about the faculty or anything before I came. And it was just this incredible, wonderful surprise to sort of see what the scene was like at USC, what the faculty were like, what the programs were like. But it sort of feels like it was some magical luck of the draw to wind up there and find that out, as opposed to the number of students who I work with now who they know what USC is. Mm. And they're working so hard to try to get into that program. I must have had just some freak of luck. <laughs> like, That's interesting, though, because I think, you know, we, we mythologize composers, um, you know, and that has to do with a lot of factors. But, of course, you know, just the, the history of classical music and we put these you know, old powdered wig guys, uh, you know, on their pedestals. And yet this is a process of of discovery. This is a process of self-realization. Composing any any kind of creative artistic pursuit Mm -hmm. is that sort of maybe you don't know where you are in a certain given moment. And there's like there's nothing wrong with that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things I like so much of my work right now um, when I'm not composing is I teach at Pasadena City College. One of the things I actually really love there working at a community college is we get all these students who have had little to no experience, like in music, certainly not in composition, and they just show up and they want to create something. 
And it's just this fantastic experience watching them go even within a couple of years from just having this idea, maybe it would be nice to write something someday to here is a portfolio of often some pretty impressive music for mm. somebody who's only been studying that long. So tell me how you got connected uh, with LA Opera and with this Eurydice Found Festival. Sure. I mean, I had done a project now, it's probably a year and a half or two years ago, um, and that was a commission from Heidi Duckler Dance Theater. Um, fantastic company, absolutely fantastic company with some really wild ideas. And Heidi had brought in um, Stacey Brightman also from LA Opera. So um, from my end, it had started as a collaboration primarily for, with the dance company. And then I found out LA Opera was also part of this. And it was also a project that brought in the Los Angeles Marine Institute. Hmm. And it was a commission to write music for a dance performance featuring two live singers, three live singers, excuse me, three live singers on the deck of two tall ships parked in San Pedro Harbor. Oh, wow. It was really interesting and really quirky. And I don't think anybody except Heidi Duckler would have dreamt this up. Um, and uh, so sort of in the process of writing that piece and working with the LA Opera singers, of course, to rehearse it. That's how I got to know Stacy first. And then we sort of stayed in touch on and off over the next year or so. And it, the timing was actually so funny because I had been finishing up a choral commission on the theme of stars, which is sort of a, a running theme in this project as well. And I remember I was having lunch with Stacy and Jennifer and we're talking about, they were just asking me what I'm working on. And as soon as I mentioned that, Stacy was like, hmm, we were just talking about something similar. And then they told me about this project and sort of went from there. Yeah. So as it takes shape, um, where are you in the composition process? So we're talking in October, and the piece will premiere in February. Yes. You know, where where are you at in the concept? Uh, you have good timing asking this question <laughs> because I hit the double bar. Today is what? Today is Tuesday on Saturday. Congratulations. Thanks. I mean, because we have so many student singers involved, um, PCC is actually starting rehearsals next week, I believe. Oh, wow. So it's a much earlier time frame than you would expect if sure. it were only working with the professional groups. Um, and that's meant on my part having to just get everything done earlier. So. Are you good with deadlines typically or are you a procrastinator? No, I try to be really good about deadlines. Yeah. I feel like if I let myself sink once, I'll never claw my way back. <laughs> <laughs> that's, well, that's great. So the piece is finished. Um, what does it look like? What's the structure of, of the piece? So it is more or less, and actually I should talk to Stacy about this as well, maybe before I go on the record, but because of all the different partners that are involved in this, we're working with Huntington, we're working with Caltech, we're working with Pasadena City College, and of course LA Opera. The upshot of it, combining all these things to meet the parameters everybody has wanted, it's an hour-long show. It, we're going to have a chorus of, I think, close to 100 singers. Um, we'll have soloists from Los Angeles Opera. We'll have a couple of other roles uh, that are done by faculty at Pasadena City College. And the challenge for us as far as just bringing together the instrumentation was we don't really have a large instrumental ensemble to kind of back that up. So we do have three percussion soloists who are going to be some of our students at PCC that we're really excited to have involved. And then um, a harp as well. And that's sort of the entirety of it. It's going to be set in 10 movements, and the theme actually is something I'm really excited about. So Stacy had come to me with the idea of just doing something for a chorus with soloists and on the theme of Eurydice, somehow. Yeah. And she had mentioned particularly this image of wanting to build it somehow around the Lyra constellation. And I remember we were chatting about it over lunch and sort of going back to all the things you and I had talked about earlier. I was thinking about 
you know, Greek myths, which are so much a part of the classical music canon here. I remember thinking about the myths that I grew up with as a kid, both from India and Hong Kong, and wanting to do something that kind of incorporated elements of all of that. So what it's turned into is the title is We, we Look to the Stars. And the idea is that it's bringing together all these myths and legends and different stories from all around the world of how people have looked at the same stars. So those 10 movements are sort of capturing different views that have texts from, I think, China, Japan, a few from the U.S., some British texts, Arabic texts, Andalusian Islam, um, really a variety of different interesting words looking at these same themes. And um, I think one of the things that was really interesting in the structure is that you can look at a text that comes from the 10th century and you can look at a text that comes from the 20th century looking at the same stars and there's themes that overlap. So the musical structure is a lot kind of built around these overlapping themes from really different places. Yeah, that's interesting. So um, tell me a little bit about these themes that overlap. Like, give a couple of examples maybe of of what you're talking about. I mean, I think one obvious one when I first started just doing research looking for texts is stars and navigation. You know, before we had all this technology, that was how you found your way around, and particularly sailing cultures, that was how you found your way around. So this idea of finding your way by the stars appears in a whole lot of texts. There's also this idea of looking at the stars and reflecting on life and death. Hmm. And I'm not an expert, but I remember reading through so many different texts and sort of feeling like maybe it, it felt like we reflected on the stars as the unknown. You see this night sky and you don't know what it is and you don't understand what it is. And it's just, we sort of reflect on and have reflected on this as posing questions. What is life? What is death? What happens after? There are all these beautiful legends about what the stars represent. So the Inuit culture, they talk about the stars as these holes from heaven where your loved ones look down. But there's things that parallel that. Again, uh, there are. there's one myth that we are setting. It is a translation of a Japanese text, but it's of a legend that's told in China as well, certain parts of Sri Lanka, certain parts of India. And it's about two lovers who are basically separated and sent up into the night sky. One of them becomes the star Vega, which is in Lyra, and the other becomes the star Altair. And the myth is that one night out of the year, there's celestial magpies who will build a bridge. They'll fly across and build a bridge between the two stars so the lovers can cross between them, Hmm. which I just thought was a beautiful image. Totally. So I suppose not only stars and life and death, but also stars and love was a big one that kept recurring. Um, there's also another theme I found so funny to do with stars and lovers. This image of a lover looking at a star and wondering if the the lost lover might be looking at that same star. Mm. I was surprised how often that seems to come back across these very different texts. So that's another idea that's run sort of yeah. runs through the piece. Yeah. Oh, how cool. So this performance brings together a number of organizations that you mentioned. It also takes place at the Huntington Library. Um, have you had association with them before? I guess PCC is right there. PCC has done a lot with them before. I think we are always keen to do more with them. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's been exciting just in this particular partnership has been to sit down with Jennifer Phillips, who runs a lot of their outreach programs, um, and talking about ways to continue this collaboration. We have done some. I know the singers often go to Huntington for research as a place to work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know that we've had a whole lot that's been very formal in partnership yeah. with Huntington before. So it's exciting to see that starting to take place, I mm-hmm. think. One of the things that I love about this project, this mm-hmm. whole festival Eurydice found, is here's 
LA Opera and all of these different partner organizations and all of these different partner artists right. coming together ostensibly I mean this is the centerpiece of this festival is a brand new opera too mm -hmm. so not only is there all of this new work being created right. by a bunch of different artists a bunch of different composers it's all in celebration of another new work and right, it's like right. we're really celebrating creation mm -hmm. with this festival I mean, it's incredibly exciting. I think it's such a special thing that LA Opera does and has done. Um, I think it's really exciting at a cultural level. Maybe that is the right word. I think Los Angeles and the, the areas around Los Angeles are large enough that that seems to make sense. I, you know, I, I was chatting with some people who just seen the brochure and seen all the festival, all the parts of this festival that are coming up. And it just, it's a lot of excitement for new work and new music. And more than that, I think to be part of such a wide community event as you said it's not about just having a discrete new work here and a discrete new work there but really this big celebration that i think as a community we get really excited about mm -hmm. it's special it's profoundly special i think mm -hmm. what's it like being a composer in los angeles does place matter a lot to you i think it's critical actually <laughs> i think particularly until you are very established as a composer, I think place is absolutely critical. That is the way the artistic fields have always worked. You know people and you meet people and personal connections. And I think it matters so much to be in a vibrant city that has so much contemporary music, a music scene as a whole and contemporary music. And then of course, other arts, things like dance and visual arts. I think it's actually pretty irreplaceable. Mm. I, I can't imagine doing the same kind of work as often if I were in a different place. And hmm. that's been a big part of why we've stayed. I don't know that I had planned to live in Los Angeles when I moved here for my bachelor's degree for, you know, the next 15 years, but now I have been. Mm -hmm. um, and it's because it's an exciting city and it's the, the art scene is just fantastic to be a part of. Yeah. And not to ask too big and broad of a question, <laughs> but um, I'm always curious, sort of your your assessment of, like, how's classical music doing? Like, is it opening itself more? Is the field becoming uh, a field that is more welcoming of people from various different backgrounds? Um, or is it still pretty tight and insular? Actually, I think it is much, It is so open. And I, I love that about being a composer here in these days. You know, I look at all my different colleagues and you look at the kind of music that they are writing and the influences they are drawing from, the experiences they are pulling from, it is, I mean, as diverse a group as I could imagine. And I think that is truly one of the most exciting things about being a part of um, new music, because all these barriers that I remember learning about as a student that were something that, you know, the prior generations really had to wrestle with. Mm -hmm. What kind of music, where you draw from, who you are, I feel like we're working so purposefully to not have that be restrained that it's like it feels like the scope and the trajectory of what's happening in music is just expanding exponentially. Mm -hmm. um, I am actually really curious and excited to see where we wind up in another 10 years, just looking at how much it's moved in the last 10. Yeah. It's something I talk to again a lot with my students, because, particularly because we have so many who are less experienced. You know, and they might show up and they have some background in heavy metal and progressive rock and they really want to write music and become composers. And I love that it's a conversation we can have now that, yes, of course you should do it. And you should draw on that because that's what makes 
your voice, your voice. And that's something that is genuinely welcomed in the field. Mm. Do you have pieces in, in your head like that you want to write? Like, do you have a cue of here's this, this music that I really want to get out there? And do you have to sort of sometimes wait um, to write things down until you get a commission? Or like, how do you how do you wrestle with just the creative thoughts that are up there? But maybe it might not be practical to spend a lot of time working on something if you know, it's just, it's not something that someone has asked for yet. Sure. Yeah, that's a great question and not one that I know I have exactly an answer to because it's something I do wrestle with. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've had two projects that have been sort of ongoing things for the last couple of years that I really wanted to get more time on and haven't. Mm -hmm. And the working solution, I don't know if this is ideal, but the working solution has been when I get a little bit of a break or things slow down a little bit, when I'm not racing a deadline on another commission to try and steal some time or borrow some time to jot down and work on that. Um, I wish I had more time. And, you know, certainly there are projects that I hope soon I'll get the chance to do more with. Right now it's this constant tug of war between what you need to be working on and what you'd like to work on. And when you're lucky, as I feel like I have been in this case, when you're lucky, they're the same thing. And mm -hmm. then it's just exciting. But I think a lot of people don't understand just how long it takes, right? The time commitment <laughs> sure. to to write a, a, a piece of music, yeah. you know, it's just, it's, there's all, like, for example, this piece mm -hmm. coming up in February, like, researching all of that text, that's composing. Yeah. Like, it's not just writing down notes. No, not at all. I mean, I feel like I wrote this piece freakishly fast. It's about <laughs> 50 minutes of music, 55 minutes of music, freakishly fast. And I've been working on it since last December. Right. And for a piece of this length, that's about right. I wouldn't have minded having an extra month or couple of months, but because it is, as you said, you do the research and particularly in any work involving text, whether you are working with a librettist who's writing it or whether you are using text that you are finding, the amount of time that just goes into searching and reading and pruning and finding themes and, you know, just getting the text to a place where it represents what you want it to represent so that you can add the music to it mm. is in of itself this enormous job. It is reading and reading and reading and comparing and, uh, you know, looking at things very critically, looking at them as as standalone movement with this text work and then looking at it in the larger arc. And mm. maybe it's beautiful as a, as a single movement, but maybe it doesn't bring in what you need to. That's months right there before you can even start on the music and then... 50 minutes of music, I would say it takes at least, oh, I don't even know what would be a right number. I'm trying to think what <laughs> yeah. mag multiplied by what would right. tell you how, how long it would actually take to write, but yeah. exponentially longer than those 50 minutes to write it, certainly. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for spending some time uh, talking about We All Look to the Stars and uh, and your process. What are you working on right now? So you've, you've hit the double bar. Just hit the double bar. So you're going to take a, a few days off. I know school is in session at yes. PCC. So. I mean, probably uh, teaching is going to be a big part and is always a big part of my life. But as far as the next musical project, um, one, you mentioned ongoing pieces, mm -hmm. one ongoing one that I've been working on back and forth over the last year or so is an opera about Ada Lovelace, who I think is this fascinating character. So that, um, I and my librettist were talking about sort of going into the next stages of that and writing a little more of it and looking into getting that produced. So to a certain extent, I'm gonna buy myself a little bit of time just to step back and yeah. um, switch gears a little bit, but perhaps not all that much because the music for that matter is not 
drastically different. A lot of the ideas are similar mm -hmm. across both of these. Thank you very much. Yeah, of course. It was really nice chatting with you. Bansal is a composer whose new work, We All Look to the Stars, will be premiered during LA Opera's Eurydice Found Festival. The performance takes place February 13th at 7.30 p.m. at the Huntington Library in San Marino. For more information and to request a festival guide, visit laopera.org. This is Behind the Curtain at LA Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen.